bit of trouble with my time, I <laughs> go on. Sorry. Right, it's first Peter, so you can start looking that up. Chapter two. Aha. There we go. Great. Okay, well we've been um, we've been studying First Peter. This is our third week. Um, it's part of a series called uh, Real Faith for Real Life. So, wait, I'm going to get that in front of you. So, find it in my own Bible. Find all the bits. Uh, Peter is right at the back of the Bible. So if you start Revelation and move back, you'll go through John and then you'll hit Peter. Right. Okay, so we've been looking at real faith for real life, about how um, real life is not a bed of roses. Sometimes um, when we come to Jesus, we can come a little bit with this kind of expectation that he's going to sort all our problems out, and that will mean that our lives won't therefore have any problems from that point on. It will be just simple. Life will just cruise along and you'll always be smiling. Uh, but obviously, as Christians, we know that's not true. Um, and when we come up against things in our lives that challenge us, real struggles, we have to ask deep questions about where God is in this. So we need a real faith not something we've made up off the top of our head or some kind of idea that we came up with. We need a real faith based on what the Bible says in order to approach the different aspects of our life. Um, when uh, We also need real faith that impacts our behaviour. So when we face the different things, how we react to those things uh, should reflect what we believe about Jesus and about who he is and about our purpose in life Uh, where we're going, and all those sorts of things. Um, That should influence our reaction to whatever we come up against. Um, And this week, Peter is really challenging us um, to consider uh, the different aspects of our lives where our faith in Jesus stands, Um, where Jesus exactly is. What is it that shapes how we, for example, uh, bring up our children? What is it that shapes the way we approach our jobs? Uh, What is it that is the foundational point of how we view our money and our finances and our resources and the things that we have? So that's what we're going to think about this week. And the key word in this passage is cornerstone. Now, I don't know anything about stone at all. So I'm not a builder, not an architect, I haven't got a clue. But I looked it up, obviously. <laughs> and uh, the cornerstone is like the really important stone. And that's what Peter wants us to grasp, isn't it? This is the stone that would be laid first. If we imagine we're... I was going to get some bricks, actually, sorry. I'll, I'll mime it. So if we're going to build a house, the very first stone we're going to lay is the cornerstone. It's going to go at the bottom, it's going to go in the corner, <laughs> and then we're going to build our house. Now, a couple of things the stone needs to be, obviously it needs to be strong, because everything's going to be on top of it, you know, because otherwise if it's a bit weak, it's going to just go, and then that'll be the end of it. And also it needs to be straight, because it's going to set the angle for our walls, 
Okay, so if we don't want wonky walls, we need to get the right cornerstone in here. And Peter is obviously encouraging us today to set Jesus as our cornerstone, our first stone, before we do anything else with our lives. Okay, so let's read the passage. It's um, chapter 2 and it starts at verse 4. And if you don't have it in front of you, it will also, hopefully, if I remember to click, come up on the screen. So I don't know when we do this. Right, da-da-da. Right, off we go. Okay, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and the stone that causes them to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which they also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, we'll stop there. Okay, so this central section to this, they've got three quotes from the Hebrew Bible, or what we sometimes call the Old Testament. Um, and they come from the Psalms and Isaiah, and we won't get into that. If you're in house groups this week, maybe you can look those up. Um, but you'll see that there's this strong kind of rock, kind of stone analogies kind of coming through. Um, and you remember, if you know much about Peter, Jesus called him a rock, didn't he? He changed his name to Peter, which meant rock. Okay. Now, if you imagine, Peter would have been with Jesus when he quoted these passages. Now, He's just gone into Jerusalem, it's coming up to his death, and he's sitting in the temple courts with the religious leaders, teachers of the law, and he brings up this, uh, he starts telling them a parable. And he tells them a parable about um, a, a landowner who rents a vineyard out to some servants. And he leaves them to do that, and then he goes to get his fruit from them. When he gets, he doesn't go himself, he sends some servants. And when they get there, they don't give him the fruit. They beat him up and send him away. So he sends a number of different servants. And eventually, because they won't listen, he sends his son, whom they kill. And Jesus finishes the parable with these verses. He says, um, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And he goes on to say, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. 
when the chief priests and the teachers of, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Now, Jesus, normally when he tells a parable, they're kind of left, ooh, I wonder what that was about. And then he goes off with his disciples and he goes, hey guys, this is what it's about. But here, he's not vague. He tells them straight out that he is talking about them. It's really obvious. All the privileges that these uh, people have been given as the people of God, chosen by God, priests of God, the people of God, belonging to God, are about to be taken away from them because they haven't given God what he deserves. He hasn't got first place in their lives. They've treated his prophets that have come horrendously and now... His son is stood in front of him, them, and he wants to, they want to kill him. Now, later on, after these guys have killed Jesus, he's risen, Peter addresses the same religious leaders. Okay, so this isn't the first time he's used this passage. In Acts chapter 4, and um, he starts to confront them with the very same words that Jesus gave them not very long ago. Gives them the same words. It says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple um, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, notice the little change here, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And he goes on to say, salvation is found in no one else. Sorry about that. See, I knew I wouldn't remember. (laughs) For there is no one under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Peter, like Jesus, is brutally clear with the religious leaders. He quotes the same message back to them, that the one that they rejected, the one that they murdered, is the one that God chose. And he is the only way for them to get to God. Peter gives them no alternatives at all. And this is a really hard message, isn't it? In a world where we have um, really so many different ideas and every idea is considered valid... Christians are really, really up against it when they say, I'm really sorry, but there is no other way. That is when it really hits it, isn't it? Because we're willing to say, I'm I'm sorry, I respect your desire to serve God, I can see that you're earnest in what you're doing, but without Jesus, you cannot come to God. Jesus said it blatantly clearly. He didn't mince his words. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's really simple. And it's a hard message, isn't it? If you imagine it's like a stone, you either accept it and you build your life on it, or it's going to be the thing that causes you to say, can't do that, can't accept that person. God sets the terms. This is the one place in our lives where we cannot set the terms and conditions. We cannot say, 
oh, but I'd like to do it this way. This seems like a nice way for me. Actually, Jesus is the way. And Jesus, we know, is rejected by many. Um, And if you accept him and if you believe this, you too are going to be rejected. Jesus was really clear, wasn't he? He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as, his, as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And Peter knows this all too well. If you remember where he is, he's in Rome. There's, uh, the Christians are being persecuted. They're being burnt alive. They're being thrown to the lions. He knows what that means to say, Jesus is Lord. I'm not bowing my knee to anyone else. He really knows the reality of what he's saying here. And he wants to encourage these Christians he's writing to and us to know that. Real life in all its fullness will involve rejection. But if you remember last week and the week before and this week, he doesn't want them to solely focus on that. The main thing he wants them to to focus on is not who rejects them, but rather who accepts them. And that's where you get all that therefore. Let's look at verse 3. It says... As you come to him, the living stone. Firstly, he wants to remind them that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. This isn't a bit of stone. Stone we generally think of as dead, don't we? And it doesn't move. It doesn't do anything. Jesus is the living stone. A man breathing, uh, moving, creating. He's vibrant. And as you come to him, that come word is not uh, come as in the first time you come. It's kind of ongoing. I don't know much about grammar, terrible at it, but it's continuous tense, I believe. You keep coming. You come continually, all the time, not just on Sundays, but as you continually come to him. Okay, As you believe in him, you trust in him, you love him, you live your life by him. He goes on to say, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now, big stone, big cornerstone. There's ours. Peter's the rock. We might be the little pebble. (laughs) I might be a little grain. Not very important. But we're all being built together as God's people to be the dwelling place of God. Now, It's hard to grasp that, isn't it? The dwelling place of God. Here we are, our little mishmash of people, different backgrounds. There's no way you'd get us in a room together if it wasn't for this. And here we are, all working together, loving each other, hopefully, caring for one another. We're being built together and we're messy. Of course we are, but we are being built and changed. And Jesus is knocking bits off us and smoothing other bits and getting us ready to be the temple. And if you remember, uh, in the Old Testament, we had the tent, first of all, as God chose his people, brought them out of Egypt. It was a tent. God dwelt there. You know, it was a power, and you couldn't get in because it was so powerful. Uh, you know, Moses would go in, and then he'd come out, and his face would be radiant, and they'd go, no, I can't cope. And then you had the temple, and the temple's filled with the glory of God, with Solomon building it. And, you know, you can't go in because the glory is, oh, it's unbelievable because God is there. 
And then you get Jesus who says, I am the temple. And you think, well, that's all right. He's the temple. Makes sense. Jesus is God. God's there. God dwelling in the temple. And then we get to us. You are the temple. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's quite awe-inspiring, isn't it? The dwelling place of God is amongst us. Pretty awesome, I think. Pretty awesome. And we're being transformed into this dwelling place through Jesus, our foundation, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So we're not going to be killing lambs anymore. We're doing something else. Moving, breathing, changing, annoying each other. Jesus is moulding us and making us and putting us together. And God is dwelling in the middle of us somehow miraculously through what Jesus has done not because we're good not because we look a little bit better than anyone else but because of the one thing we've got Jesus as our cornerstone so what does that worship look like let's have a quick peek Uh, Romans remember very popular verse in view of God's mercy, all that is done, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That kind of idea that everything about you is offered to God. Remember the continually coming, continually coming, continually offering our bodies, continually laying them down and saying, God, you get first place. This is what some other guys said in the New Testament. Uh, this is from uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. He talks about financial gifts. When we give In the offering bag, when we give by standing order, when we let go of our money and say, God, you can use it, it's an act of worship. Not just singing, but we are worshipping when we're giving. Uh, Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, an act of worship. Anytime we're declaring who Jesus is, what he's done, where he's been, how it'll come again, we're worshipping God. We're giving the honour and glory to Jesus. Another one from Hebrews, doing good to others, sharing all that God has entrusted us with. (gasps) Sharing all that God has entrusted us with. Not sharing the little bit I feel like sharing today. Not sharing this bit I've put aside to share with people, which I do quite a lot. This is my sharing bit. I will share that with you. No, sharing all that God has entrusted us with. Now that really hurts, doesn't it? All that God, all, all of it. Surely I can just put my 10% here and share that? No, all of what God. And this is our act of worship. Our whole lives are to be worship. We lay them down. So our jobs, um, are the money that we have, our attitude towards our possessions, the conversations that we have can be acts of worship to God through Jesus. Am I going to? When we accept Jesus, we've got all those things. Remember he said, um, you know, he's going to take it away from those people that have rejected him. We're chosen, we're royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're God's community. And finally, Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's go back to that bit. 
As temporary residents, we are to be holy, different, different holy. We can use those interchangeably. We're to abstain from sinful desires which war against our soul. I like this, warring. It kind of pits my sinful desires in their rightful place, that it is a war. You know, often we can like, sorry, we can beat ourselves up thinking, oh, I shouldn't be like this. I'm so rubbish. Why can't I just stop doing it? It is a war that you are in, a war against your sinful desires. Remember, like, you've got all that stuff in Romans about sinful nature and your natural nature. I'm not going to get into that, but it is tough. It's a war that's going on. And if we think about war, it's underhanded, it's deceptive, it's aggressive, it's sneaky, it's going in the back door, it's got spies. We're in a war against our sinful natures. Puts them in perspective. And I don't know what your sinful desires are. We've all got them. So no one can sit here and think, oh, I don't have any. Actually, we all have them. It could be that money has a hold on you. I think that's a little bit for all of us, probably, that it is holding us. We don't want to share all our stuff. We like it. It's mine. I'll share that bit, but not all of it. Maybe you find yourself continually thinking, oh, if I just had that thing, then I would be happy. Well, that's money directing us. It could be dominating your thoughts. It could be sexual desires. You could, it could be your thought life. Your thought pattern is not right. When you see someone, oh, your brain's just gone there. It could be unhelpful in your marriage. It could be your internet use. It is a war. It's not something that you just think, oh, well, I'll just stop doing that. It's a war. We need power. It could be material desires. We're, we're looking at other Christians in the church and thinking, but they've got this and I don't seem to have anything. Or we look outside the church and we think, mm, oh, if only I had that, if only I had that. It's a war. I find myself doing it. I admit it. I look and I think, oh, it's not fair. Totally fair. Speak quiet, Louise Parker. Flukes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> oh, no. The shame. That's all you're going to remember now. <laughs> could be emotional desires. We're demanding stuff of others. And this war, if you think about war, it doesn't generally last in a day, does it? You get like the hundred year war and you get the war that lasted my whole lifetime. And I think sometimes it can be a lifetime, a lifetime of fighting our sinful desires. And some of them we master, but I think a little bit like, you know, alcoholism and stuff like that, you say, you're never really, you know, thinking, well, that is a desire that I struggle with. And every now and then it pops up again. I think I mastered it, but it comes back. And we need to share it with people. We're the body, aren't we? Get with somebody that you can be really honest with. You can say, I'm going to confess to you what my sinful desires are. In the humiliation of doing that often breaks so much of it. Get with someone that you can share that with. They can, you can be accountable to them. They, they stand with you and fight. They will ask you, how are you doing on that? Are you fighting it? Or have you just lied down and just accepted it this week? Get with your house group. Maybe there's someone in there that you will be able to share with. And remember, of course, we need weapons. You know, we've got that great passage in Ephesians about putting on the armour of God. 
We need faith in Jesus. We need the knowledge of who we are in him. We need the word of God. We need prayer. We need to get together. And be assured that however much we struggle, Christ has the victory. Even if Christ doesn't um, change that particular aspect of your life in the here and now, there is a promise that you will be free from it. You will be free. That might be now, that might be next year, that might be 20 years from now, but you will be free because Jesus has the victory. He has won. So as we come to the end, let's just have a little bit of reflection time. Where is Jesus in your life? Is he that foundational stone? Is he the cornerstone in your life? Um, Is your life built on what he says about himself about how much you are worth, about your purpose, why you're here, and about your future, where you're going. Does the Bible inform your attitudes towards your job, how you treat your wife, how you bring up your children, what you do with your time, how we view immigration and um, war and health and wealth? Is that the foundation of everything? Or... Have you placed something else there? Could be that the stone of Jesus is kind of on the side of your building. It's kind of a Sunday building stone or a crisis stone, but it's not really the foundation stone. And when your life gets difficult, of course, it's going to come crashing down. If it's not got Jesus at the bottom, it's going to crumble. You know, it might be something else shaping your life. Your foundation stone might be a sinful agenda. It could be a sinful desire. It could be that that's influencing how you see the world. We need to make sure it's Jesus. Or maybe Jesus isn't even in your building. Maybe he's like over here somewhere. And as it says in the Bible, just so you kind of keep tripping over him. And he just gets in the way and just wish he'd go away, quite frankly. Because your house looks quite nice, actually. And if I go and put this stone in, I've got to take my whole house down. I've got to put it in at the bottom. And I don't really want to do that because my house looks quite nice. I spent a long time building it. But Jesus is really clear, isn't he? At the end times when Jesus returns, if it's not built on Jesus, your house is worth nothing. Nothing at all. You might as well pull it down now. Whoever or whatever, including ourselves, that's the foundation of our lives, will not stand up for eternity. And it won't give us true stability. When we hit real life, that thing is not going to stand. When we're building on Jesus, inevitably, wrong stones try and wedge their way in. Say, oh, go on, let me in. I'm going to get in your house. We've got to be really aware of that. And lots of people will tell us, actually, you're wasting your time. You're building on the wrong stone. And because our buildings sometimes look a bit mishmashy, they're not that great. It's a process. Jesus is making it and building it and building us together, and it's a slow process. We can sometimes have some doubts and think, oh, have I chosen the wrong stone? We need to go back to the Bible. Jesus is the foundation. Without that, our house will fall. Whatever it looks like, however shiny and new someone else's house might look like, their life might seem to be great, it will fall. 
We're just going to spend a few minutes now just quietly reflecting. And I want you to think, firstly, we could go down a depressive route. Let's start by just thinking about God's great love for us, that he's chosen us. We read in chapter 1 that he is guarding us. He has adopted us as his children. He's dwelling amongst us. And then ask him, out of his love, to look into our lives and point out areas where maybe he's not the cornerstone or we've pushed him out in our relationships, our attitudes, our purposes, our goals in life. Let's just spend some minutes, a few minutes in quiet and then the band will come and lead us.